Greetings, listeners. Welcome back inside the Feral Zone. I am Renee Komen, operating under cover of darkness from an undisclosed location. My guest co-host tonight, the illustrious Ms. Nicole Pavi, night nurse, co-conspirator, lifelong friend. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you, Renee. Welcome and to uh, our undisclosed location. Yes, yes, good to be here. Keep, keep uh, that mic right on your mouth. And uh, last time you were on the, the podcast, Nicole, you introduced me to a longtime uh, friend of yours right here from the neighborhood, very distinguished gentleman, uh, turned out to be one of our most popular episodes ever, uh, the, the great uh, Dr. Donald Schuler. Uh, and, and at the time, you talked about uh, uh, a great lifelong friend of his that he had, uh, much like you and his I are His name, yes, exactly. So, so today, we were, we're, we're very privileged. Nicole, once again, has facilitated a, a, a visitation with uh, Dr. Don Schuler. And, uh, and as a bonus, uh, she's hooked up his, his lifelong friend, Mr. Eddie Young. So we'd like to welcome, once again, back to the podcast, the great Dr. Don Schuler and Eddie Young. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, but you could probably reveal the location we're at, if you like. Well, no, I like to keep it, uh, it's, it's more mysterious. We, we like the, the mystique, you know. Uh, it's a very nice location. Oh yes, yes, yes. Well, we can say that we're uh, we're in the Garden District. It's uh, it's a it's a, a, a beautiful uh, uh, I don't know nineteenth century cottage. Nineteenth century cottage, high ceilings. What are we? Uh, it's like twelve foot ceilings here. I'm guessing. Thirteen. Thirteen. There you go. Why are you <laughs> describing my house? <laughs> just just where we are, Don. We're just talking about where we are. Give the give the people I some. I know, but why is some context. Describing my house. Well, I, that's I know more about it than you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one thing in the world you know more about than me, if that is the case, which it isn't. One of them. So we, we were establishing when you first met, the two of you. When was it? Well, just to remind the, uh, the listeners that haven't heard the first one, and if you haven't, uh, go, go back and check out that Feral Zone number five with uh, Dr. Don Schuler. And, and you can get all the background. Don's uh, uh, in his 90s now. He's, uh, he's a f- uh, professor, author, uh, conservationist. Uh, 93. 93, yes. And at the time when you were on, you were 92 and a half. And I like the way you told me at the time, 92 and a half, like, like the way a kid does, you know, <laughs> they give you the half year. But uh, you, now you actually just celebrated a, a birthday. You're now 93. Happy I'm birthday. Afraid so. Well, not so much afraid so as astonished so. Yeah. Well, tell us about the party you had. It was lovely. What now? The birthday party. Oh, yes. Uh, I had a birthday party, or rather my friends had a birthday party for me. And uh, it confirmed the fact that I'm actually 93 years old. Nice. And, and well-loved. We had quite a crowd. Well, I don't know what to say about that except to argue that it wasn't true, but it is true. I'm well loved. Oh, there you go. You uh, are. A begrudging admission. <laughs> In spite of yourself. Actually, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's the presence of Eddie, but I'm being a smart ass, which is not really what 
I like being. Well, we like that on the Feral Zone. That's right. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, me, me and it. that's that's the the basis of Nicole and 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 my friendship, basically, is <laughs> trying to outsmart ass each other. There, there have been yeah, some. He, he, he is a sweet gentleman. He just has this side to him that acts out a little bit. So, so uh, Eddie, uh, we we know from the previous podcast that that Don uh, is not from New Orleans. He was uh, born in Brooklyn, made his way down here in the in the early fifties. Tell us something about your background, uh, Eddie. Uh, did you grow up in New Orleans? Yeah, I'm from New Orleans. You're from New Orleans, okay. Where'd you go to high school? Warren Easton. Oh, right on. And then I went to LSU where. Don and I met um, second or third year I was there. Oh, so that's, that's, y'all know each other from LSU? Yes, we do. Were you in the English department as well? No, I had a girlfriend who was in the English department who would bring me to the department parties. And one of them was at his house, uh, and we met one evening, um, and then eventually ended up being friends and going drinking together. Okay. Drinking buddies, I like that. Yeah. yeah, we had a sort of, right from the beginning, a competitive relationship. I mean, uh, you know, he, I was a graduate student, he was an undergraduate, and uh, we would argue with each other and we would wrestle with each other and uh, race. He was an ex Marine, big, strong, and I couldn't resist. I had a what? <laughs> you were an ex-Marine, big, oh, yeah. strong, uh, physically powerful, and I couldn't resist trying to take you down. And couldn't. Okay. And did, though, even though I couldn't. So did you have uh, that kind of uh, military background, Eddie? Not at that point. Uh, later, I was in the Army. But oh, okay. Is that by choice, or were you drafted or something? Uh, well, my, my, I joined, but my draft number was coming up, so I joined uh, with the idea that it would give me a little um, determination about what I did. Uh-huh. Did that work out? Eventually. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Donna, I believe you, you had uh, good memories of, of being in the Marines, right? I, I know you've you you uh, you said it it opened your world. You saw the South for the first time being in the Marines. That's true. It was uh, yes. Uh, I, I mean, I don't have a particular passion about having been a Marine. Sure, sure. Yeah, but it it had a positive effect. Yeah, Eddie, yeah. It uh, brought me to the South. Which okay. I've never been to. His older brother was uh, really a hero in the Marine Corps in World War Two. And I think Don was uh, in great admiration of this older brother and probably following in his footsteps. Okay. Well, so, so tell us something about, about your life, uh, Eddie, after, after LSU. You said you were, you were in the military. Did uh, you see any action? Or uh, you don't have to get hung up on, on the, the military part. Just uh... No, I was in um, a scientific unit. Oh. And I was in weapons research and development. Okay. Did that lead to a, a career after, the, after your service? Well, it led to changing careers because I decided I didn't like the aerospace and weapons industry as a place to work. Hmm. So I changed fields two or three times. Okay. What sort of work uh, did you do in your career? 
Somebody asked me that once, and I said, name something. <laughs> okay. Uh, sales, I don't know, research. Yes. yes. You're well, a scientist? At one time. Okay. I have publications in professional journals. Uh, of what, what, what type of professional journals? You're being very cagey here. <laughs> don't make me journal, bag, Eddie. <laughs> journal of Counseling Psychology. Oh, okay. Are you a trained psychologist? No. Okay. <laughs> but I was in graduate school for it for a couple of years. I published an original research article the, on encounter groups. Hmm. The first one published of its nature that included data before and after results. Now, encounter. I was very proud of that. Sure, sure. Now, encounter groups, that's like a, a 1960s uh, kind of thing? Exactly. Well, tell us about that. Uh, well, I went to Berkeley after I got out of the Army and worked a year or two and decided I wanted to change fields. Um, and at Berkeley, that's where I met people who were involved in that and became active in it and uh, enjoyed it very much. Okay. And uh, you remained uh, in contact with Don uh, across this time? Yeah, we stayed in touch. Even when I was in the Army, we were in contact. He, uh, at one year, he was taking a job where he traveled, and he had this beautiful Impala convertible. I think he didn't want the battery to go dead or something, and he gave it to me to keep uh, while I was in Huntsville, Alabama, and he was traveling. I returned it to him intact a year or so later, and I think he later wrecked it in Mexico. Yep. <laughs> it was very interesting experience being wrecked in Mexico. I would not recommend it. No. In the Impala, the convertible. Did you have water with you? When I went through New Mexico, I remember it was advised to bring gallons of water. Oh, honey, I don't remember. That was a... <laughs> Talking about provisions. Age. <laughs> provisions <laughs> 60 years ago. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Sure, sure. Well, well so, so, Eddie, um, d uh, when, when you first met Don, d uh, you, were, you knew Don was gay and... I did. And that at that time, it didn't, didn't have any, any thoughts one way or the other? Um... No, I was impressed by his uh, strength and ability and his intelligence and um, you know, his um, other characteristics were his business and sure. not mine except. Now, Don has said numerous times that he would, that you often went to Dixie's with him as well. Do you have memories of Dixie's? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I should remember that. Eddie was a whole lot, very, very, very good-looking. We went young drinking. Man. Okay. And, uh, and we drank in uh, every bar in the quarter. What? I said we went drinking. Yeah, we went drinking. We wasn't With just you, always. We, usually drank we would go bars, to Dixie's at my instigation, because it was sort of like, uh, you know, if you're going out hunting, and you shoot a deer. You drape it over the front of the car so everybody can admire its antlers and so on and so forth. Uh -huh. And so I would have fun dragging him. Well, he didn't mind. He liked being admired. Uh, I'd bring him to Dixie's and drape him over the chair. Did you realize, Eddie, that Don was 
Oh, yeah. You were a trophy. <laughs> I just assumed we were out drinking. I mean, I wasn't that cognizant of being anything special, you know. That you were being used as bait. Women were not flocking after me to the degree that I, you know, hoped for, so... Well, what was the quarter like? Myself. What was the quarter like? Was it, uh, did you go to all sorts of clubs? Were you just... No, we went everywhere. What about music? Don is absolutely disinterested in music. Well, did you enjoy music then? I Don, did. this morning you didn't even know who Bob Marley was. So, yes, yeah. no. You don't, well, <laughs> you don't follow music. Ask me about Schubert or Bach. What about Dylan? Hey. Do you know who Bob Dylan is? Please. Yes, I okay. do, oddly enough. But I used to go sit and watch uh, an old African-American piano player that I liked a whole lot. I liked Al Hurt. I would sit in his place for hours and hours. And um can't remember. I never really knew the musicians' names except for Al Hurt. He was so uh, unique and extraordinary. So so this is the, the 50s we're talking about or the 60s? Uh, this would be the late... 50s, 60s, maybe later. During oh, the there was one great dancing bar that we, everybody went to, La Casas de los Marinos. Yeah. And we all went to that, and we would go to that many times together. And uh, I don't know what he did, but I would dance. And we just loved the place. Now, this is uh, pre-Jim uh, Garrison as DA, before Jim Garrison became the, the, the district attorney that time, I understand the quarter was way w wide open, like uh, it was kind of mob run. Uh, do you have memories of, of the, the French Quarter or New Orleans in general being uh, more of a wide open town than, than it, it became later on in the 70s with, uh, with the... Jim Garrison wasn't particularly down on corruption. He was... Um, as I recall, he assigned his office investigators to harass the gay bars. Uh huh. Um, it's a sort of a reverse psychology. You suspect the man who goes on a witch hunt uh, against what might be his own um, hidden psychology. Right. That's I've I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I believe it thoroughly. You believe? Sure. Sure. Yeah. But, well, there must have been a, a fair well, amount of... There's no stories about the guy. You know, I worked in the DA's office after he left. Oh, okay. And, you know, there were stories there and there's stories all over the city about him. Um, he was, was an evil He was man. a real nut. Yeah. Very bad man. Well, yeah, I, I heard that, uh, you know, there was... Uh, he had his own level of kink that uh, perhaps, as, as you allude to, Eddie, that uh, he was... He was trying to cover up by uh, grinding everybody else's kink down into the ground. To a high degree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had a friend uh, at the NOAC who went to law school with him and uh, referred to Garrison as a sexual polyglot. Okay. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, but uh, please don't, don't persecute. Not uh, me, I'm just quoting somebody else. Right, right. No, I understand. I'm saying no, nothing wrong with that. It's the only problem is is uh, is is when you when that the hypocrisy the hypocrisy which Thank we're you, dealing with at this moment. Mm -hmm. I I just have to put that out there. Hypocrisy is a, clearly it's nothing new. No, no, no. But the quarter was really just good times. There was lots of music. There was drinking. I mean, we had been going to the quarter since I was 15 years old. All you needed was a little piece of paper that said draft card on it and you could go anywhere. Uh-huh. 
and, and nobody, you know, tried to enforce uh, restrictions on that. Okay, so uh, you as obviously... As the mob and the gangsters, they were all there doing what they do, which was behind the scenes. Right, and, uh, you know, they obviously didn't want to bother the, the regular patrons. They're uh, businessmen. Right, they, right, exactly. Yeah. Did you know Clay Shaw? Because I know you're into, you do a lot of renovation and restoration and adore and love uh, architecture. Well, I knew that Clay Shaw was, was a great man, really. He, uh, the work he did in New Orleans, and he was a very early uh, renovator. And Don knew him well, and I knew of him through Don's talking about him. I did not know him personally. Yeah, it was that whole scene was absolutely incredible. Clay was a very civilized, from New Orleans' point of view, beneficial presence. And he was a very successful businessman. The whole business of his being persecuted by this psycho <laughs> was disgusting and really, really very upsetting. And he uh, eventually destroyed Clay. It was uh, just yeah. a really horrible episode in the city. And the, the fact that everybody knew that Clay was innocent and yet he had to go through the ordeal of a trial says a lot about the cowardice of the power structure in the city at the time. They all knew that Clay was innocent. None of them dared speak up, including the newspaper, until he was finally acquitted of the ridiculous crimes. That, uh, He's never been fully vindicated either. I think that well, there's there still, still... Yeah, I'm sure there's still people around. I mean, conspiracy. The power of the district attorney in Louisiana at that time, and I don't know if it's changed, I think it must have, was so significant that no one would challenge him. Even the governor would stand back. Um, the judges, but you know, because of the grand jury that he would use with indiscretion, for almost anything he wanted to achieve. So you said you started going to the quarter when you were 15. So that would have been or, long... Or younger. Long I, before I really remember. Don came into the picture. Yeah. Yes. Probably 20 or so when Don and I met. And um, what kind of friends did you go to the French Quarter with? And what kind of... Was it music? And, and were you... I worked at... Pontchartrain Beach as a lifeguard. And all the guys on the beach would go downtown together and drink at night. And that's I what see. we would do. It's not unlike Renee and I back in the day. Sure. We had little fake IDs on from Canal Street. <laughs> at least I did. Well, yes, and Nicole and I, the, when we grew up, it was still the era when, uh, you know, obviously the drinking age was 18, and I always comment on how when someone 25 is, is looking at someone, they can't tell whether they're 18 or 14. They all pretty much look like kids to them, you know. So, yes, if you could come in and present yourself and had money for a drink, they'd let you in. Yeah, they didn't really care. I mean, if you had something that they could say, well, he had a d ID. Right. I'm pretty sure when I wobbled in in, in stilettos and carried in the uh, amp, 
of the band that I was going to see, and the bouncer said, look, she brought her lunchbox. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they knew I wasn't 18. They knew you were underage, and they just didn't care. <laughs> no. Sure, sure. No. But New Orleans, you know. I like to drink, but I like to chase music, too. I think we were chasing music more than anything. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Eddie, you're, are you close to Don's age? Uh, just to get, to get a... Uh, uh, I'm 83. 83. Okay. And so you're quite a bit younger than Don. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we made it a bargain. He said, you know, he doesn't have to worry about anything until I'm well gone. And... Uh, then he's going to have to catch up with me, but uh, he's safe for as long as I'm alive. He'll always be younger. That's what I like to say, you know, like I like to hang around. I have so many friends that are in my age, in their 50s, and they're, you know, boohoo about aging. And I say, you're not hanging around the right crowd. You just, you know, get a nonagenarian friend and you'll always feel young. Especially somebody like you, Don. Oh, I think I'm saying thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate that we look at age as uh, in a negative way, where there are other cultures who um, age is an enhancing characteristic. Well, we didn't care about age. We were trying to get in with our fake IDs. <laughs> we wanted to. Yeah, no, I, I, well, I mean, on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, sure, no, sure. I no, I, com Absolutely. I completely agree with you, Eddie, which is kind of why I'm doing this, because uh, the, I, I agree with that, uh, that it's, a, it's an advantage. There's, there's so much to uh, be gained uh, and from wisdom and experience of, of. And Renee and I are so curious about uh, New Orleans and the development of the city and what it was like. I know I have a friend who's a musician, and he was telling me how he read an autobiography by Jelly Roll Morton or a, 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 some sort of a biography, and then also then read Dr. John's uh, story, which, Don, I know you're not interested in. We've already established, Don and I don't... Mac Rabinac. Yes. yes, exactly. He was in high school when I was. Oh, really? Oh, really? Was always, the name was always on the radio. Yeah, that's right. But he, my friend... Early, early rock and roll. Exactly. Right? So he was a Jesuit and you were at, uh, at uh, uh, Warren Easton just down the street, kind of right in right, the same mid-city neighborhood. Exactly. Now, did you see any of those, uh, those early bands with, with uh, Mac playing in them? I don't know if I saw him playing. I know he went to high school dances every weekend. There was a Sacred Heart on Canal Street on Friday night, St. Anthony on Saturday night, and I think St. Dominic's on Sunday night. And sometimes they had bands. We were widely exposed to the music. Right, and they had a lot of a lot of great New Orleans R and B artists were playing those dances, like CYO dances uh, in some cases. Right, I think they even had one across from my old house on Bienville Street, Germania Hall, um, which is like the forty four hundred block. It's a it's a, like a, a Masonic lodge or something like that. But uh, my my parents told me about that they would they would go to to dances there sometimes. On, on uh, I should I should know the place because. It's still there. Right around the corner. Yeah. So you Bienville, 4400 Bienville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's still there. Well, I do know the place. I have a warehouse at 45 or something. Oh, okay. But so you grew up in that mid-city neighborhood? 
uh, right on the edge of it in, in Old Lakeview uh, near Delgado Park. Sure. Which was just three or four blocks from uh, City Park Avenue, which was a dividing line between Lakeview and um, Mid-City and the older part of the city. So what, what was your family uh, background? Uh, to, to You had brothers, sisters? There were six children in my family. Okay. Catholics? No. Oh, okay. No, just uh, a rare non-Catholic in New Orleans. All right. But I mean, you know, a family of six was large, but we had new people who came from families of 11 and 12. What brought your father here from Memphis? Is that right? Your father was when? His job. Yep. And you said he was how old when um, you told me he was born in 1898? Is that 1891. how? 1891. 1891. Yep. And he came down from... Memphis, is that right? Uh, he worked in Memphis prior to World War I, uh, went into the Army in World War I, and came back and worked for the same company for 43 years or something like that, and just went wherever they sent him. I think they stayed in Memphis and then went to Little Rock, where I was born, and then they were transferred to New Orleans. We did a year in Chicago and then came back to New Orleans. And what sort of company was that? Swifting Company, a food. Oh, okay. Big food company. One of the, in its time, one of the major corporations in the country. So getting back to, to you and Don, uh, uh, Don told a story about uh, going to, to the Selma March on his podcast. I understand you were, you were on that. And in fact, he mentions you as, as being uh, the person that, that that uh, was there with him. Well, I picked him up and took him. Oh, okay. You were the instigator. Yes. No, but he did have the car. Okay. <laughs> I came to his house and I said, I'm going to Selma. Are you coming? I was already dressing and getting ready to go to his house. But if he wants to say that he was the instigator, he can. And, and you don't agree on who the third person was with no, you? Uh, no. He's even conceded. He looked at my journal. His name was Alan Aldra. Oh, okay. So you did but confirm who it was. Dead certain, you know, just because that's a long time ago to remember. Now, and Don, Arlen is a mutual friend, so it's it's likely that it was Alan. And you wrote uh, at the time about Selma. Yes. And it has not been published. Not many people have read about that. In your, it's just your journal entries. That's right. Yeah, uh, very important to me entry. I mean, it was a very important moment, and I still remember it vividly. Yeah, Arlen and Eddie and I went in uh, your car. We left, I think, about 11 o'clock at night and drove through the night to meet the march right outside of Montgomery, and then uh, joined it at that point and walked in with them. It just felt very good about doing it. We, it, was, uh, we were, it was an amazing spectacle. We were up on top of, I've never been to the town Montgomery before or since, but we were up on a sort of plateau, thousands of people. It was drizzling, it was raining early in the morning. I had a cold and I was lying down. Eddie had uh, put his raincoat over me and I was feeling really very sick. And then miraculously, we all started gathering up. They told us to get in lines of four. 
was it four or six? Eight and we did. Eight and w the weird thing was that it was perfectly, it was almost though it had been coordinated. We all stayed beautifully in line, six in a line, that's what it was. And I'd clap, clap for freedom, and we'd all clap, clap, and march down the hill to the... Uh, and it was peaceful, the, right? Oh, God, yes. There were nice little ladies, you know, from Episcopalian churches in New England and so on. Some 20, of them came over 000. and off, and, you know, because I was, look, I was really pretty sick when it began. Uh, offered me cookies and stuff. And, uh, you know, we all remarked on how we all felt perfectly safe. But then we, the little ladies would say, yes, but I do wonder how it's going to be getting back to, to the plane. And <laughs> thought would run through everybody's, was running through everybody's mind. We're safe as long as we're right here in the town with the cops and all that standing around. But we still have to go home. And it was a lovely drive. And what was the climate, what was the atmosphere and the culture in New Orleans that at that time, you must have been very pro-integration and pro-civil rights to make that journey. Yes. Yes, you would have been. Were there things here that you felt offended by that you could see that, that history needed to change? Well, the, the behavior of police towards African Americans. There were some demonstrations in the city, but, you know, it, we, I would wear a hat with uh, a big brim because I was a professor, you know, at the university, and I didn't want to be singing out. And they had the opposition would have people running around taking pictures of us. And that made you a little bit uneasy. Uh, so Don worked for the state, so he didn't want to be identified yeah. because of the potential consequences of... Um, but they were generally non-violent, these... No, I don't think the there city? was any violence. Uh, New Orleans, you know, was not a southern city. You know that because you were here. There, there wasn't a real... Well, there just, it certainly was segregated but not to the extent that um, southern towns and cities were. Now, just to, out of curiosity, what are your feelings about what the political atmosphere right now, what's happened right now? Is it shocking? Were you, could you have anticipated anything like this? I know that you went through the Nixon era and we talked about, we talked already about our memories because I do remember saying uh, Nixon, Nixon, in the garbage can, Hubert Humphrey, he's our man. <laughs> so I do have some very early political memories, but you all would have been, that would have been, you would have been in your 20s or were you already in your 30s, Don? With this 10 year difference. <coughs> What years are we talking about exactly? When the Nixon-Watergate uh, debacle, for what would you call it? I was, you know, uh, you know a professor at the university. Right. Uh, Full-grown man. I don't think I was being tremendously political at the time, as I recall. I was but you never have, really. Your passion is conservation. Pretty much, yes. But I was very... Uh, 
I still am care what is going on in the government. And, you know, nothing in my younger life has compared with the recent rule of that madman that's... Uh, may still be our president again, God forbid. Well, the madman um, who, who I voted for, um, supported by 50% you know, of the population, and Did that gets lost in the conversation about the events, that half of the population supported this, and you know, half were opposed, and it really wasn't that big of a split. And we're talking about the current events or the events in at Selma. Was that a fifty-fifty? Oh, no, no, no. Right, right. Selma was uh, clear. We didn't have any trouble distinguishing. Civil rights movement was a passionate movement. I mean, when this man spoke, Martin Luther King. I mean, you just chilled your whole body. You know, shivers went through you, and um, and he was the center of it, and we were. We were. Um, Do you think that that's that. what is happening for people who support Trump? That they're having chills and shivers. <laughs> Sorry, Renee, to go political, but I'm very curious about historically where our current situation. How people? I know there's a lot of stuff on television. They have I the. Think they talk too much about somebody who's no longer the president. Yes, I think that's probably a good idea. But that was who you voted for. Would you vote yeah. for him twice? Well, it depends on who was on the other side. You know? Right. And I don't vote by party. I vote by person. Even worse, Eddie. Sorry. <laughs> by person. Well, yes, because it's hard to judge people. I never knew that he voted for Trump. I'm a little shocked. We just had never talked about it. Yeah. And I didn't really vote for I don't Trump. Get into I, it. I yes, voted, no. I voted against his opponent. And so is this how you... Um, you maintain a 65-year friendship is to not go to certain topics? Oh, no, we oh, no, we've we argued every about time. everything. Everything. <laughs> there was nothing. Uh, Off the table? No, yeah. I remember uh, Eddie's wife fleeing the room when... When we would scream at each other. would be yelling at each other, you know, and all that. No. So. And what were the topics that you yelled at each other about? Oh, over one. who was the instigator? Name one. <laughs> we, just, you know, we just like to argue. Yeah, I don't remember. Different was, points of view. We disagreed on everything. So on a, it's a sad comment on my own, you know, uh, uh, great age. That, uh, we're sort of nice to each other apparently now. <laughs> Well, you know, it's the, the differences between people that really keep it interesting. You know, it's that friction. You know, if everybody agrees with, with everything that, that their friends say, then, you know, what do you, what do you talk about? Then we maintain a friendship in spite of our differences in point of view. And in many ways because of them. That, uh, you know, you, you, you each bring some different points of view to the table. I think that uh, keeps things interesting. Maybe it helps. You hope so. Right. So, you know, we've, we've talked in, in the previous episode uh, that Don was on about his, all of his great uh, conservation work and his, his uh, place in Mississippi that he, that he developed. Did you, uh, did you ever spend much time there at the place? Oh, yes. And uh, my wife and I and my family would go up there frequently. We helped in some of the early construction 
of the first house and the second house. Um, and, um, and that is one of Don's real geniuses is his um, flora and fauna knowledge, his sense of animals, his everything he does in his place. He didn't just live in the country. He, he built uh, an environment that had extinguished itself over time and he reestablished it and in the process the wildlife reestablished itself around him. He has, a, he has a form of genius, it's just not the one he thinks he has. Oh, he's, we're being, see, we're being nice to each other nowadays. Okay. It? Yeah, I remember one evening you and your wife came up and... Veronica. Veronica. Uh, they were stoned. They got stoned sitting on the porch. And I think it was that time that you decided, you know, you didn't really like me getting stoned. I don't know. I just... Were you a hippie, Eddie, ever? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Certainly at one time. I went to Berkeley during the free speech movement. Oh, you would have been, yeah. What was Berkeley like at that time? Uh, what year was story. that? I'm always a big stickler for... Uh, 1966 the... and 67. And it was a wonderful, beautiful place. I was born in Berkeley. Oh, really? Yes, in 1964. Yeah, I so. should have stayed. <laughs> you think that? I do, yeah. I, I only left because I got a fellowship offered to me at the University of Miami, and I, and I even thought about not taking it for a little while. But I applied to 13 schools, and the 13th one accepted me, and so I... And you went to Miami as well? Yes. Well, we've been to some of the same places because I went to, I got my nursing license in Miami. Okay. <laughs> so was that a teaching position that, that you had there? A graduate student. Oh, okay. The, the fellowship was a paid, everything was paid. Okay. Did you ever uh, teach at the college level though? Like, you know, no. Like, so you were just there as a student. and. Uh, right. And then you went and used that degree in one of your many jobs? <laughs> no, I, I did not finish graduate school. What was that degree in, by the way? What, what? Well, the next degree I got was, in, was an MBA, which I got in New Orleans. Uh, the time I spent in Miami, I, I didn't finish the program and um, then went back to work. What was Miami like at that time? 25% Cuban. And, um, Had Castro uh, was Castro established in Cuba? I'm sorry, I'm showing my lack yeah, of historical Castro knowledge. Took place when I was at LSU. That's when the revolution was. Okay. I remember I had a girlfriend in the Garden District on Jackson Avenue, and her mother would dress in fatigues like Castro <laughs> for their parties. <sighs> that was when I think well, I was a freshman, so it would have been 1956 or 57. Castro is still a, a cause celeb in, in certain, still there, yeah. certain circles. So it was 25% Cuban in uh, Miami. And what was, were there a lot of, because uh, when I was there, there was a, lot, a very large Holocaust survivor well, it's group. Because it's, Miami is kind of like downtown New York. And that's where retirees from New York would go to, from the Jewish community. And so that's why there were so many. Now, you know, Nicole, something I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I recently started watching this, uh, this, this 
program that just premiered on uh, Apple Plus TV, Five Days at Memorial. Um, yes. So it's a yes. Ka- Katrina story of you know what went on at uh, at Baptist Memorial Hospital there in the aftermath of uh, of Katrina. Now. Uh, you must know some people that were there, huh? I know I, the principal players, some of them. Yeah. And it was very... Uh, I had just left New Orleans, so it was... Even from a distance, watching Katrina from a distance was traumatic. You know, obviously, what, speaking to people who went through it, it seems like there's levels of survivors. You know, people who were here that didn't... Uh, leave people that left and came back to flooded homes but yes I knew uh, one of the doctors who was the you know quote unquote whistleblower who said he he was he went on CNN afterwards and said that there was um, euthanasia that happened and he also um, said that there was a lot of racism that they were allowing white people to come into the hospital but not allowing black people that were you know because during a disaster people will go to the hospital seeking help that's where you think this is what people told me people that's where people were going for help Mm -hmm. with the hospitals and um and he was always a passionate doctor like we worked together at a sister hospital of memorial so i you know knew what was happening you know knew him well Mm -hmm. And again, I think, I, I think you actually introduced him to me one time. Oh I think, yes, I think yes, before that he had, he had come into a, you. He, we met you had come exactly, into a club. Yes. exactly. You have to get him for a podcast. Oh yeah, well, oh. He, he. I doubt he ever wanted to come back to New Orleans because I had friends that, again, a great polarization. That there was another doctor who apparently, you know, was the heroine of the story in in some circles and my friends could not you know there was a huge i think they passed good samaritan laws because of her they didn't want her to be held accountable for you know euthanasia during the there was just a lot of people told me don't even have him on your facebook you know get I mean, yeah. it, was, it was bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was yeah, right, it was right, bad, so. people. And it, it'll be interesting. I want to see. I've read the book. Yeah. And I read. It started out as a New York Times article that right. that uh, journalist wrote, and then. Um, but I do want to see who's playing him. <laughs> right. It's uh, the. It's. Uh, it was, I, I've watched the first three episodes. It's it's incredible. You know, it's shocking. It's uh, it's hard to watch, but you can't look away. You yes. know, it's. Uh, uh, a lot of PTSD. I wasn't in the city, but even just being a New Orleanian outside of the city, you know, of course, you you, you can't exactly you can't ha- help, have help, but have your heart and break. People always told me about the people who stayed. Everybody says, uh, you know, there are stories that will never come out. Right. Which uh, is why I like talking to, you know, Don and Eddie, because there are so many things that historically you know, I never knew about. There's there's just the local stories about the architecture and the development of architecture, but the stories about Selma, you know, personal stories that people never have a chance to tell. Sure. And sure. I know there's things that will not, you know, come out about Katrina because I had a lot of friends that, especially, I have a friend who's a historian. In fact, your friend, uh, Stephen Ambrose, 
his niece is a friend of mine and she was looking at this map and she was talking about how what she loved about Katrina, if there was anything to love about it, was that it was history in the making, watching history occur as you're living, you know, more, uh, we're all history in the making, really. But I remember looking at the map and she was trying to figure out who the pockets of death were. She was like, oh, there's a hundred died here, a hundred died there. And um, she was trying to figure out, she couldn't figure out, and I immediately said it was the hospitals. Those are those, right, those are what you're seeing. Uh-huh. But where were you two during Katrina? Did you go to Mississippi, Don? Uh, no, I uh, drove up to a good friends of mine's uh, in Virginia. Right during the Camille was the hurricane that was the most destructive for you. That you were, or or when you came back there, where it's a lot of trees down at the place, weren't oh, there? Oh yeah, it was very bad. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, the Mississippi Gulf Coast was sort of neglected in the stories about they they didn't get the coverage that New Orleans did about with Katrina. Yeah, well, even the the coverage of New Orleans was seemed to be spotty, you know, and certain stories were easy to report because you could see it from the air, right? And so those the, and in the popular memory. That's what happened. That's why I'm glad this thing is coming out in a certain way. You know, it's like the, it really kind of gives you the, the, the grand scale that it wasn't one neighborhood in New Orleans. It was the whole city. It was, right. you know, all the way, you know, all, all the way that close to the river, you know, that far from the lake, people were still still in a horrible situation. You know, you think of how close Memorial is to the river. It's, it shows right. you the whole city was was. Now, now, Eddie, were you in town uh, for uh, for Katrina? Yes, I I have never had never left for a hurricane before, but I was watching it online and saw the capacity and the size of it, and woke everybody up and said we're going to leave, and so we headed out across the causeway and then got stuck in a traffic jam while we were expecting the storm to come in any minute. But managed to get across and ended up going to my brother's house in North Carolina. But on the way, I think I changed direction four times trying to decide which way or way to go. Um, and then ended up coming back to New Orleans a week later. And I did not have a negative experience with Katrina. Um, I had things like the kindness of people when we were on the road. Um, and there was a young man in the hotel lobby uh, uh, who was kind of destitute, and people who were all traveling people were just giving him money, you know, to kind of help him. Um, I stopped to get a, uh, I had a blowout, and I stopped to get a tire for my car, and um, they, they didn't have what I needed, so they had to sell me a whole tire and a rim. I said, fine, I'll take it, you know, just give it to me. I said, how much? And the guy says, um, $20. This is a car dealership. Right. You know, he's giving me a $500 item. Uh-huh. And he's saying $20. I said, no, come on, be, be serious. He said, no, $20. And he yells at the cashier, just $20. Mark this up at $20. He just gave it to us because he knew we were leaving New Orleans and we were... The situation you were in. Right. But, but we weren't. We had money. And, and I told the guy that, but he still wouldn't accept any payment. 
I tell you what, the generosity of the American people in the in the aftermath of Katrina was really did bring you to tears. It was uh, it was it was quite remarkable. I'm not sure that they would that that they have the capacity to do that again. You know, if that were to go down, I think people don't change. Yeah. Well, Australia was interesting because they had just had a bushfire that went through, mm-hmm. and only a year and. So there were other Americans there that were not very supportive of me because I was I really like watching it from a distance was traumatic. And they all had political views about it and all said, well, you can't blame the government and you can't, you know, this. There was a lot of opinions from Americans, but Australians were very supportive because they had just been through a fire and they all said, you know, we're a wealthy city and we still have looting. Don't be embarrassed about the looting. And right. they said, you know, don't. And, and they all talked about the arbitrariness of fire, which was similar to Katrina, that the, the bushfire went through, you know, one neighborhood would be burned to the ground, another one wouldn't. They, would t- they talked about the failure of the insurance companies, the failure of the uh, the... Um, just the government, they knew the fire was in a certain area and they didn't make some things that they could have done that they didn't. And then also an interesting thing was friends of mine that went through Katrina, they talked a lot about when they looked at something that people who lost everything and they would look at something that was muddy or try to get stuff, you know, to restore a piece of China my friends that were in the bushfire that lost a lot, they would say they were fine until they saw a melted, their child's melted toy, mm-hmm. or, and then that would bring out a lot of emotional stuff. Sure, sure. But I found fire, I think fire is a more frightening element myself, just because, and, and because of Katrina, it allowed a lot of my Australian friends wanted to... Uh, they immediately told me stories about how the sky was black, black, black at the middle of the day and the roar of the fire was so loud they couldn't hear each other's voices. And uh, in some, for me, that's a scarier element than water. You know, but we're Louisianians. We know hurricanes and we know... Right. I mean, I feel like I'm used to water, you know? I'm yeah, used yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know fire would would scare me and i feel for the people in the west coast and what's happening now and oh, speaking yeah. of conservation or you know i have a lot of concerns about the environmental climate change uh, you have a very reason to be concerned Yes, Don, you want to talk on that? Uh, I was just going to ask you all uh, we're kind of going to be wrapping up here in a minute but uh, so just uh you know what you see, uh, your your feelings going forward globally and uh, New Orleans in general. Oh boy! Uh, I mean, do you think we have? No, here's the thing. So, so you know the the Malthusian uh, idea that uh, resources are limited, uh, we are we are doomed as doomed can be. Uh, that's that's an idea going back uh, over a hundred years. It hasn't really played out uh, man has always been able to uh, think his way out of of these predicaments do you think there's any any chance that that will happen <laughs> uh, no, you know we along with cockroaches are going to be the last things living on the 
world if it really does come to an end. No, we will. S we will do what we've done um, for thousands of years, which is survive one way or another. I'm not very optimistic about the immediate future, and by the immediate future, I mean the next 40, 50, 60 years. But uh, but we'll survive. You think we are have more survival ability than a stegosaurus? Than a what? Stegosaurus. Sure, of course we do. <laughs> I mean, poor things. They don't have very big brains. They didn't have very big brains. We have brains. Well, that's reassuring. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. Yeah, and I remember the Green Revolution in the 70s when the predictions were that the world was going to run out of food. And I really think technological ability in the world is going to make the difference. But it is a time of greater uncertainty than I think I have ever known. I mean, you have a, a, a grand uh, uh, view of, you know, of a, a long life. And, and so, I mean, it feels that way to me as um, about to turn, you know. Well, I'm sure it does to a lot of people. Right. So, international situation, climate. Uh, Do you agree, Don? I'm pretty pessimistic. Not about our survival and all that sort of thing, but uh, the environment and uh, the quality of life. Until we start making serious reductions in human population one way or another, and other major considerations, uh, I'm not looking for it to be a paradise. Uh, for quite a while. Eddie, you were I, saying? I did read something recently that suggested that the population growth of the world was, was peaking and turning around. And it fits predictions of, as cultures develop, their, their populations actually go down. The Japanese being the best and earliest example of that. And so if the world population does begin to decline, women in undeveloped countries become a little more educated, more opportunities are made uh, for everyone, that yes, it could, you know, could turn around, could, things could be better. But then there's the nuclear warfare possibility that's, that's a little overwhelming. Yes, but right now with the... Even during World War II when I was a child, I never had any fear of, you know, that we were in any kind of danger. But uh, now it's different. Uh, a glimmer of hope, but a tempered glimmer of hope. Perhaps. <laughs> a smile. We can't hear the smile, but I like it anyway. Well, I, you know, I plan to be here for a while, and I think if we don't self-destruct, that things could be very good. Outstanding. Outstanding, Eddie. Well, it's been such a thrill to, to be able to get you on the podcast, Eddie, and, and to have uh, Don back on the podcast. And of course, Nicole, it's always a thrill. Thank you. And uh, Everybody likes and to give their opinion. Sure, sure. <laughs> Every, and then uh, the, the, uh, the Feral Zone loves to, uh, to, to hear about uh, these, these considered uh, qualified opinions. So uh, we're so honored to have you, Don. I'm, I'm so glad you're, you're uh, you know, you 
you you've rallied uh had your had your birthday it's it's a thrill to be here with you once again thank you pleasure to talk around and as i said thank you eddie it's uh, it's been a pleasure to meet you today and thanks for coming on such short notice it was really nice of thank you thank you for the opportunity and uh, as always... Uh, a lot of thanks going around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot to be thankful for, Nicole. We're all here together, uh, you know, our old friends uh, once again. So uh, on the feral zone, as we always like to say, uh, good night. These new dreams ain't like the old ones. No, they've got teeth. They've got teeth. And a chance to come true Yeah, these new dreams Much better than the old ones Cause you got me And baby, I've got you We left our half-lives in order Shelf life in those bars But these new dreams Are downright better And from now on Things won't be so hard Got you.